0: 2 Kings chapter 10, we're finishing up the life of Jehu. Most of what we have on him is in Kings. There is a little bit in Chronicles where he gets a mention, but it isn't really a whole lot. And what is interesting to note is that though Jehu is king, we have nothing about what he does as king. All we have is what he does to get himself into the position of, of king. So we had this question there, why does God pick so many people for king in other positions who end up failing? Because really, when you look at the overall scheme of things, God does not hit too many home runs. Moses was a home run. Elijah was a good one, certainly a a home run there. Elisha, certainly a home run there. David, some ups and downs, but overall, we consider David to be a home run. He was a a good shot. Now Solomon, I don't know, I kind of consider him maybe a single or a double he he was uh, he was a little lacking in in, in uh, some of the other things. Jeroboam was picked to be the first king over in the king in the the north, and he was a failure from day one. As soon as he became king, he he kind of went the, the wrong direction. And Jehu was another one who was picked. There are some other folks that are picked in the Bible. I'm going to anoint you to be king, and they fail. They fail a lot of times they fail miserably. So why is it if God, who knows the future, who knows what's going to happen in the end times, knows what's going to happen along the way, why is it that God picks people who end up being failures? Did you ever ask yourself that question? (laughs) There ought to be an answer for this, right? There ought to be a a decent answer for this. So we're going to take a look at this because Jehu is one of the failures. God handpicked him. God told Elijah... Go anoint Jehu. Elijah didn't do it. Elisha went out there and sent somebody, and finally Jehu is anointed. And we hear even in Chronicles, that when it talks about Jehu, it talks about him being anointed by God to do a certain job. So he's definitely picked by God, definitely anointed, but he didn't, uh, he, he didn't do so well. So if we spend time, we can go on through. Uh, I mean, Jesus picked 12 disciples. 11 of them were home runs. One was not, and one was predicted not to be. Paul picked a lot of helpers. Some of them turned out to be pretty good. Some of them turned out to be not so good at all. Some were disasters. So, let's figure this out. In verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 10, Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. I don't know about you, but (laughs) that is one large family. That's just the boys. I understand? Some girls got mixed in there as well. Phew! So obviously he had more than one wife, because wow, that is a that is a lot. So he had seventy sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote letter, wrote and sent letters to Samaria, to the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to those who reared Ahab's sons, saying. Now, as soon as this letter comes to you, since your master's sons are with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city also, and weapons, choose the best qualified of your master's sons, set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. That sounds like a fairly decent request. Jehu is bold. Jehu knows he's anointed by God to take care of this house. And he is fearless in what he does. He doesn't show an ounce of fear. He did, we don't need to sneak up on these guys. We don't need to deceive them. We're just going to go in there. Look, I am going to kill you all. If you all want to stop it, pick one of you guys, become king, use your fortified city, use your weapons, use your chariots, use these things, and come against me and fight me because I'm coming to get you. So either fight or, or whatever it is you're going to do. But here's what I'm going to do. But they were exceedingly afraid. And said, look, two kings could not stand up to him. How then can we stand? And he who was in charge of the house, and he who was in charge of the city, the elders also, and those who reared the sons, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, we will do all you tell us, but we will not make anyone king. Do what is good in your sight. These folks have been given charge of the royal heirs, the princes of the land, the king's sons. Their only job is to see to it that they grow up and are taught what they need to know to be princes. And eventually, one of them to be a king. That's their only job. And now, Jehu comes along and says, what you've been doing, what you've been sowing into, what you've been working to, I want you to wipe it all out. I want you to completely erase everything you have done for all these years. That might be just a little bit tough to do. Ahab, of course, is dead. His son is is dead, these are the uh, remaining heirs, they are afraid. So they have this challenge and they say, we're we're not going to take that challenge. You tell us what you want us to do and we will comply because we don't think we can stand against you. They said two kings could not stand against them. How are we going to do it? Now I put in your outline this momentum. We all know, if, if you watch sports at all, if you watch football, you know that during the course of a game, certain things happen, and the announcers are always talking about momentum. That the momentum is on this team's side. And then the momentum seems to swing because of a certain play or something happened. And uh, uh, one of the biggest things I ever thought about with with, with this is watching the Philadelphia Eagles because I really hardly watch any other football team. I just don't have a whole lot of interest in it, but uh, I was watching them. And we had a very exciting player, you all remember, Randall Cunningham. Who was uh, in college? He was a punter as well as a quarterback. And basically, I think the guy could play just about any position humanly possible. He just was an amazing talent. And I'm still waiting for NFL films to put out a Randall Cunningham highlight reel. I just want a whole hour of nothing but Randall Cunningham highlights and just sit down there and just watch all that. You don't like football, you probably won't want to do that. But I could, I could, I had to, right now, I had to think about them in my mind. And I think about a lot of plays that he did. They're just that outstanding. But one game in particular, I think it was against the Washington Redskins, but it may have been against the New York Giants. It's one of the the teams in our division. We were losing, and everything seemed to be going against us. We were backed up in our own end zone, and we seemed to have no Nothing was working. We couldn't get find our way out. And so it was third down. Randall Cunningham lines up in the shotgun formation. If you don't know what that is, it's when the quarterback is several yards behind the center, and instead of being up under center, they hike it back to him uh, several yards behind. And so he's in the end zone, which if you get tackled back there, it's a safety, it's it's not too good. So they uh, hike it to him, and instead of him looking for someone to pass to or handing the ball off to someone to run to, he punted the ball. Punted the ball. Again, he was a really good punter. And this punt, because no one was ready to receive it, this punt went sailing down the field and it rolled, it bounced, and it rolled and it went all the way over and pinned the other team on their goal around their goal line. It was inside the ten, inside the five, it was way down there. It was a ninety some odd yard punt, if I remember correctly. It was incredible. Everyone was totally amazed that anyone could punt it that far. I was amazed that you could punt on third down. I had no idea you could punt on third down up until then. But apparently, you don't have to tell the other team that you are punting. You can just punt. And since the quarterback they had, which was... <clears throat> no other team had a quarterback who could punt, let alone one who could punt better than any other punter in the league. So he punted this thing all the way down, and it pinned the other team all the way down on their end. That fired up the defense. It was a Buddy Ryan defense, I think, at the time. And... Um, So they just came out and swarmed them, and the entire momentum for the whole game changed on that one play. And instead of being under everything, now it seemed like they were on top of everything. And the defense swarmed them, pinned them down. They had to punt. We got good field position. We scored. We scored again. We scored again. Eventually, we won the game. Went from losing game, a hopeless game, one punt, swung the momentum, and it just seemed like the other team was just under it from that point on. I'd love to get that that game on tape. That was just a fun game to to have watched. I could watch that one again. There's a lot of his games I could watch again. There's a lot of games this year I would never want to watch one time. <laughs> but a lot of those games they just were. He was something special. Oh, he was he was a fun player. For those of you who remember Randall Cunningham, he's a, a preacher at a church now. He, he pastors a church. He's he's in ministry. But anyway. Momentum. Momentum can change. One thing can change momentum. And all of a sudden you were under the, the thing and now it seems like you are on, on top of it. In baseball, sometimes somebody's stealing a, a base, somebody just making an incredible catch in the outfield, things like that just seem to sway the momentum. People get fired up and it just seems to go the other way. Right now, Jehu has swayed the momentum to his side. And it s- seems like people are saying, hey, you know what, we can't stop him. Two kings couldn't stop them. We can't stop them. So let's just give into it. They lay down. They give into it. And pretty soon, everybody's on Jehu's side. Momentum. Have you ever felt like everything was against you? And the momentum seems to be pouring against you. And you can't seem to, to, uh, to get over over this. It's just wave after wave after wave. The momentum is, seems to be on the enemy side. Things can change it. All you need is one thing to change it. We look to God. We get a miracle. We get, God, I need something to go on. How many times did we see the momentum change for, for Israel with, um, w- when they were in the wilderness and things happened and all of a sudden what should have been a defeat turned into a victory for, for them? Think of this as momentum. All right, the momentum is against me right now, but it doesn't stay that way. It doesn't stay that way. We know that way watching just regular sports teams, some of the stupidest sports momentum changes. And once it changes, it doesn't seem to always go back the other way. You just got to get that, that change going. All right, so verse 6. Then he wrote a second letter to them saying, If you are for me and would obey my voice, take the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me at Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were rearing them. So it was when the letter came to them, that they took the king's sons and slaughtered 70 persons, put their heads in baskets, and sent them to him at Jezreel. Can you imagine this? You cut off the heads of 70 men, put them in baskets, and here you got an entourage going over to where Jehu is with baskets full of 70 heads of people. (laughs) That is something else to do. But it says these were the great men of the city. You don't become a great man of the city until you've done some things. These, these are not people without a track record. They have stood up to stuff. They have changed things. They have altered things. And Jehu comes up against them, and they throw everything that they have worked for up to this point. Throw it away. Cut their heads off. This is what they do with uh, people in, in leadership. How did David uh, deal with Goliath? Cut his head off. How did the Philistines deal with Saul? Cut his head off. When you have an enemy, especially one of, of royalty, a king or some, some kind of great... You cut their... This is what they did. That's not what we would do now. Well, some people are trying to do it again. But generally, we don't do that anymore. Um, but they did back here. If you had a king, if you, had, you cut their head off, it showed, demonstrated some things. So that's why they did it. Um, Jehu wants them to cut their heads off. You know, you can't live without your head. So you don't need the whole body. If I have the head, I know the rest of it's not working. If you have a hand, the rest of the the body can still be working. Head, no. So they sent him over to Jezreel. Then a messenger came and told him, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until morning. Now, why would you lay them at the entrance of the gate? So everybody can see. It's The only reason to do it. Just take all the... Can you imagine walking in a gate and there are 70 heads all piled up on each other? That is, uh, that is something. So they put all that out there. So it was in the morning that he went out and stood and said to all the people, You are righteous. Indeed, I conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? So he's basically saying this. Look, I'll tell you, I killed, I killed the king. I killed the other king. I killed uh, some of these. But I didn't kill all these folks. Who do you think killed all these people? Now he does it for a reason. I'm not the only one killing Ahab's house. This is the word of the Lord, but I'm not the only one doing it. Verse 10. Now know that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. Look at his words. Now, uh, Know now that nothing shall fall to the earth of the word of the Lord... Which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he spoke by his servant Elijah. He is basically telling them, you see this? I didn't kill them. I started the killing. I started going after the house. But other people did this. The word of the Lord came. And the word of the Lord is going to be fulfilled. Whether I am doing it or someone else is. His word came out against this king. This king's house is going down. Now that tells you that's what Jehu believes. It is amazing that he can believe this and go in the direction that he does. But keep in mind that this is what he states. This is what he believes. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left none remaining. How many were left? None. Jehu is thorough. He's going to get them all. Verse 12. And he arose and departed and went to Samaria. On the way at Beth Echad of the shepherds, Jehu met with the brothers of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, Who are you? So they answered, We are the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. Obviously, they have no idea who Jehu is. The guy who killed Ahaziah, their brother. We are the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king. And the sons of the queen mother. And he said, take them alive. So they took them alive and killed them at the well of Beth Echad. Forty-two men and left none of them. Why are forty-two brothers traveling together in a foreign country? They are brothers of Ahaziah. Ahaziah was the king of the southern tribes Judah and Benjamin. They are in the northern tribes. All 42, all together. Can you imagine 42 brothers traveling together? We are the brothers of Ahaziah. We have come down to greet the sons of the king and the sons of the queen mother. So, who are they here to greet? The royalty that is there. They are continuing the bond between themselves and the northern kingdom. It's all you who needs to know? but they are relatives of Ahab because of the marriage that that Jehoshaphat brought together. So all 42 brothers, he gathers them all up. He says, boy, you just made my work easy. I thought I was going to go find all you guys. Here you all just came together all in a nice little bunch. And you identified yourselves so well. Who are you? Oh, we're the brothers of Ahaziah. All together, he's got to be looking at God and says, God, man, you are making this so easy. I got people, other, other people that are killing the 70 sons. I got 42 brothers. They all just come right up to my door here, right up my, my path. Here they are. They identify themselves. and this is great. And he doesn't have to seek after God as to what to do because he knows what to do with them. His anointing, his calling is wipe out the house of Ahab. They are part of the house of Ahab. So he wipes them out. This will have significance when we get to the next chapter. But we're not going to get into that just now. Verse 15. Now, when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him. And he said to him, Is your heart right as my heart is toward your heart? Now, that sounds kind of weird. So I went over to the New Living Translation and I pulled it from there and put it in your outline for you. Are you as loyal to me as I am to you? That's what he's basically saying. Are you as loyal to me as I am to you? So he basically says yes. Now Jehonadab was a Kenite. If you don't know what that is, that is the descendant of uh, Moses' father-in-law Jethro. So Jehonadab answered, "It is." Jehu said, "If it is, give me your hand." So he gave him his hand, and he took him up into a chariot. Into the chariot. Then he said, "Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord." So they had him ride in his chariot. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. It is not wrong to be zealous for the Lord. It is not long, wrong for other people to want other people to see your zeal for the Lord. But it seems that Jehu is a little bit more into the showing off part than maybe he should be. Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And he came to Samaria. He killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. So he comes to Samaria. There's still some more remnants, still some distant relative, whatever it is. He finds them. He kills them. Wipes them out completely. So Jehu destroys all the descendants of Ahab. Verse 18. Then Jehu gathered all the people together, and he said to them, he still's got his, his buddy over here showing them how zealous he is for God. Ahab served Baal a little; Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, and all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu active acted deceptively with the intent of destroying the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu said, "Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal." So they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. So they came into the temple of Baal, and the temple of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said to the one in charge of the wardrobe, "Bring out vestments for all the worshipers of Baal." So he brought all vestments of, for them. Then Jehu and Jehanadab, the son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal and said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there are no servants of the Lord, that no servants of the Lord are here with you, but only worshippers of Baal. So they went in to offer sacrifices and burn offerings. Now Jehu had appointed for himself 80 men on the outside and said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escapes, whoever lets him escape, it shall be his life for the life of the other. So he set this whole thing up. He's he's passing himself off as a worshiper of Baal for the purpose of getting them all together. He will not be satisfied with 95% of the worshipers of Baal. He wants all of them. He wants everybody who leads in worship in Baal. He wants everybody who wants to worship Baal. He wants them all wiped out. Jehu's saying he likes to get all. (laughs) So he has set this thing up. He set himself up as a Baal worshiper. Now, he's got to carry this charade on for a number of days, weeks, whatever long it takes to get people from all the areas of the country, get word out to them, and get them to come to where he is at. So he carries this thing on for all this time, gets them all there, puts them all in real nice robes, and their defenses are down. They are looking forward to a wonderful time of just worshiping, sacrificing the Baal. And so that's where they are where they're at, what they're doing. Now it happened. As soon as he had made an end of offering, the burnt offering, he didn't just fake, he actually went through and did the offering of Baal. He went through and did the whole, whatever service they did for Baal, he's there doing this thing. And Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and kill them. Let no one come out. And they killed them with the edge of the sword. Then the guards and the officers threw them out and went into the inner room of the temple of Baal. And they brought the sacred pillars out of the temple of Baal. And burned them. Then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal. And tore down the temple of Baal. And made it a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. He just he totally eradicated this. 80 guys all armed. The people on the inside are not armed. It is a gun-free zone. All we're there to do is to to worship God. But the guys on the outside, they got the guns. And they basically tell them, we only need any of you because they have nothing, no armament at all. We only have so many doors they can get out of. Now, you make sure that none of them escape. And you kill every single one. If any of you lets anybody go, I will require your life for theirs. Now, we've seen that in some other stories before, too. But anyway, this, we, we see it certainly here with this one. And once they wipe out all the people, then they bring down all the sacred pillars, all the sacred objects. They destroy them and they tear down the temple. No matter how grand it was, they didn't say, hey, we can use it for something else. No, we tear it down, burn it up, destroy it. It is gone. We want this worship, this false worship eradicated from here. Now, that wasn't the only false worship. There was also the Astras. We didn't hear any mention from them whether they grouped them together like they had done before. I, don't, I can't answer that for you. This is only talking about the Baals, but we know that on the mountain with Elijah, they were both grouped together. It is possible that they were both grouped together again, and they just weren't mentioned. I don't know. But certainly the false worship, uh, worship of idols is something that he was very excited to bring to an end. And so he does this. He purges this thing out. We took care of the objects of worship. We took care of the worshipers. We took care of any desire of people to worship because they will know that Jehu will kill you if you worship Baal. Next verse. However, that's never a good way to start. A, However, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. These golden calves were a problem for Israel until they were carried off into captivity. No one ever took care of this. Now, the golden calves are not an idolatrous type of worship. It's not like the Baals. The Baals were worshiping. When you worship Baal, you worship a God different from Jehovah. You are not worshiping Jehovah. You are worshiping a different God. The golden calves represented worship of Jehovah but it was done in a false way it was done in a way that was not biblical they had their own priest of all classes of people they had their own feast days and holidays that they totally rewrote everything so that it did not resemble what was going on in the southern kingdom because jeroboam did not want them going down to jerusalem and worshiping worshiping at the temple so he set up these two that they would worship here instead And he changed how things were done. At that point when he did it, many people left the northern tribes to come down into the southern tribes. So the southern tribe of Judah was representative of all the tribes of Israel because so many had come down. So it says that he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who had made Israel sin. So he kept the same feast days that they had before. He kept making priests out of any, any class of people. He didn't change that. Jehu either didn't care to or didn't feel that he was able to go against the nation who had fallen in love with this type of worship. And he didn't, didn't change that. Verse uh, 30, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. So his son, his grandson, so forth, fourth generation, they will of Jehu will He'd say he say you're going to stay there forever, not like David's promise. Fourth generation, again, does God know the future? Yes, Jehu did much of what God asked him to do. He did eradicate some of the false worship that was in the land, but he did not get rid of the corrupted worship of Je- of Jehovah. They are coming to worship Jehovah, but they are doing it in a corrupt way. It is important, even today, worship, that it, whether it be of Jehovah or some false worship. If it's not done the way the Word of God dictates, it is false worship. And God is not happy with it. God does not like it. So Jehu did not do this. He had a lot of momentum going on his, his side. For some reason, he just didn't seem to be able to 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 make this thing go and to to go the way. Going back to the football analogy, can you imagine having all that momentum on your team? Things are going and you hit a fourth and one. you got a big running back. You've been running on this team for the last quarter. They haven't been able to stop you. And on fourth and one, you decide we need to punt. You don't want to take the chance of giving the ball and you you don't do it and you can switch the momentum to go the other direction. That's exactly what is, is going on here. He is in a point of decision. Will you eradicate this false worship? In order to do it, he has to reinstitute correct worship for Jehovah, which means bringing in the Levites as priests, which means sending people down to Jerusalem to worship. Now, Jerusalem is not in the best of shape either. Remember, some false things have been brought in down over there too. He may have rationalized inside themselves. I can't send them down there. That place is filled with falseness. But that doesn't matter. That's not his decision to make. His decision, what he was supposed to do was what God wanted to do. And this was not one of them. I have to assume, because of what it's not in the Bible, but it certainly happened other times, that prophets were always dispatched. And a prophet, or two, or three, or whatever, was probably dispatched to Jehu to tell him, you need to do this. You need to take care of this. One prophet in particular is still alive and still going strong. And that's Elisha. And I don't think Elisha would have been afraid to tell Jehu, hey, you need to cut this stuff out. So he was probably confronted with prophets. And he probably turned them away. It's not like he didn't know what to do. He just didn't do it. It says, however, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. That is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. So he was knew it was sin, or it was pointed out to him as sin somehow he's responsible for knowing that this thing is sin. And he didn't turn away from it. But God gave him a nice promise. Verse thirty one. It's a sad verse too. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord, God of Israel, with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. So here we have another view of it. He took no heed to walk In the law of the Lord God of Israel, with all his heart, he took no heed to do it. It takes something on your side to walk in the law of the Lord. You have to know it, and you have to decide to follow it. So he was probably made aware of what the law said, and he decided not to heed it. The Bible is very clear when it says this. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel. That's a deliberate effort on his part. It's not a, oh, I didn't know. It is a deliberate effort on his part not to do something. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. And Hazael conquered them in all the territory of Israel. From the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, Manasseh. From Aror, which is by the river Ammon including Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu, all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Jehoaz, his son, reigned in his place. And the period that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Here's something to note. We have kings we've already covered that reigned less time than 28 years, and we know more about what they did than Jehu. That just strikes me as odd. 28 years he reigned, the longest of any king for uh, a little while now, and we know nothing of what he did outside of what he did to get the power. We know that he had some mighty acts because the Bible tells us. All his mighty acts are all written down, but it's not in the book that we have, another book that they were written down in. All right, so here's our questions. Why hit, why pick Jehu and others who failed? Why do it? If you know, and God knows, the, he knows beginning and he knows it all. And we've talked about this. He knows it all because he is involved in all timelines at the same time. So he knows exactly where you are going to go, what you are going to do. When he puts a calling on your life, he already knows whether you are going to fulfill it or not. So, why, why go out and grab Jehu? One, one explanation you could say, well, there was nobody better. Everybody else would have done worse. And maybe that's possible. Maybe that's... But, but then why anoint Jehu to do it? Why not just let them pick somebody? Why, why do you anoint Jehu to to do this particular thing why to go to all that all that time i put this in your outline cuz i want to make sure that we we had this written down for you god may know our choices but he doesn't make them for us god may know our choices but he does not make them for us this is a really important point to understand he may know what you are going to choose but he does not make decisions based on yours. If he says, Jehu is not going to be a good king, therefore I will not give him an opportunity to be one, then he has already made the decision for Jehu, and Jehu never gets the opportunity. God does not make your decisions for you, even though he knows what you are going to do. Think back in the very beginning in the book of Genesis. Does God know that Adam and Eve are going to fail? (laughs) Sure sure does. He's already got the plan in place. As soon as they sin, He's already there with the, how we're going to do this and fix this thing up. He knows they're going to fail, but He does not make the decision for them. He, He doesn't say, well, I'm not going to create man because I know they're going to fail and then I'm going to have to go through all this. He goes through and creates man anyway. He goes through and he anoints David to be king even though he knows David is going to have some shortcomings and some failings. He goes ahead and anoints Solomon to be king and Solomon does a great job for 10, 15 years and then falls off. He does not make your decisions for you. These people who go out there and say, well, the reason I'm here is because God has made all my decisions. God has predestined me to go in this direction and I really had no choice but to, this is work. no. That's not it at all. Nothing to do with it. Some people will say, well, God knew I would be in this condition. God knew I would be in this place, so he's got a plan. No. God can make a plan to bring you out of it. But understand that wasn't God's plan. You make your own decisions. God may know what you're going to do. He may be sad that you're going to do a wrong one or glad that you're going to do a right one. But he will not make those decisions for you. And Jehu did the things necessary to be qualified for God to put that anointing on him. He just didn't carry it out of the way. That was his decision. He had the ability to decide to do something else. But he didn't do it. Jeroboam had had the ability to decide to keep worshiping God. Had that ability. He decided on his own. No, I'm not going to do it. And he concocted in his own mind. People, once they go down there, they're going to forget about me. They're going to kill me, go back to the house of David. And uh, that's probably not what would happen at all, especially if God said, if you do like David did, I'll make your house an enduring house the way I did of David. He didn't trust God, and he went out in his own way. So he may know our choices, but he doesn't make them for us. Now, this is another important point to, to understand. God chooses you for who you can become, not who you would become. God chooses you for who you can become, not for who you would become. We may not ever walk in what we should be doing, what we can be doing, but it doesn't mean that we couldn't get there. And the reason that God called us and anointed us and put us in that place is because we could do that. He didn't do it because we would do that. I still remember that uh, word that Brother Hagen got when God told him, it says, you're now ready to enter the first phase of your ministry. Many ministers have lived and died and never entered into the first phase of their ministry. That meant they were called to go in a certain direction, to do a certain thing, and never reached it. it. Never went out that way. They could become something, but they decided they wouldn't. That part is up to us. So why does God pick failures? God picks, picks people who have the ability, who have the anointing, who have the uh, potential to become what God wanted them to become. And they chose not to. They chose to go a different direction. They chose to give in to peer pressure. They chose in to go after the love of money, the love of power, all these different things that were there. And they, they didn't stay with it. I've heard many a, many a person who has gone to Washington as a uh, president, senator, house of representative, uh, judge on the, on the court, all the different positions that are out there, that have gone there and believed a certain way about the Constitution, believed very strongly about the Constitution, believed very strongly about the principles that this country was founded on. And when they got there, the pressure to go to another direction, the promise of power, the promise of fame, the promise of fortune was so much that it swayed them and they were no longer the person who believed in the Constitution that they were before and they were now doing things that they said they would never do because of all this pressure. They had the potential to become something great, but they, they didn't. They didn't stand up to, to that wrote this in my outline. I couldn't put it in yours. But further evidence that we are not predestined to a future. It is one of our own choosing. We are not predestined to go a certain direction or to have a certain future. God knows what that future is. But there is no predestination that makes it be that way. If we understand this concept, we understand this principle, not only is it easy to understand how God picked failures it's also easier to understand how people didn't pick God to become born again. God had nothing to do with their decision not to pick Him. No matter how many Calvinists are out there trying to teach one way or the other about this thing, that's not the way that it is. It's not that God picked you ahead of time as to be in the family or not to be in the family. But He knows who's going to pick to be in the family. But He still gives everybody the opportunity to be In the family. They decide. And people have to become accountable for their own decisions. And what they decided to do. And Jehu will be held and has been held accountable for his own decisions. What he decided to do and what he decided not to do. And that's what he will be judged on. God is not judged because he picked the wrong person. He picked a person who could be in the position and who could do all the things that were there, but they just decided not to. They gave in to the, some of the pressure, some of the things that were going on around him. Now, why did Jehu go bad? Why did other people... Why did Jeroboam go bad? Why did Solomon go bad? Why do some people go bad? Why did the people that Paul had on his team, why did some of them go bad? Well, as zealous as we are for the work of God... If we are not zealous for his word, our foundation will not be strong enough to sustain whatever we build and it will fall. Think of Manhattan. Manhattan has these towering skyscrapers. The reason they can build these towering skyscrapers is because of the bedrock that is underneath. And that bedrock is so solid and goes down so far that you can build these towering monstrosities right next to each other over and over. All these kind of things going on. And Manhattan is, the, you know, the retail, what is it, apartments up there go for how much? And, have you ever heard the story? People like to throw it around on Thanksgiving or uh, the times, you know, whenever they want to make the United States look bad, that we, were, we ripped off the Indians for the deal in Manhattan. Have you ever heard that? And, and we did not rip off the Indians for Manhattan, no matter how many people want to try and tell you that. The, the actual story of this thing, I don't know if you're familiar with this, maybe you are familiar, the Indians ripped us off. Because what happened was a tribe sold us the land we call Manhattan. They called it something different at the time. They sold us that land. We paid for that land to a tribe, but that tribe had no right to sell it. And then when we came to, to claim it, we found out another tribe actually had ownership of the, of the place. We had to pay them as well as the one we already paid. So we paid twice for the land of Manhattan. And then, of course, today they all want to say, well, we ripped them off. We gave them so little money for something that was so valuable. That land was not valuable to the Indians because the Indians did not build cities or port cities. The settlers who came over built cities and port cities. The only thing that made that land more valuable was it was a port city. And therefore, people brought in goods and, and so therefore it became valuable. And then, of course, it of uh, after that because of what people did with it. But at the time they bought it, it had no value other than what they sold it for. But anyway, that's just the things that they, they like to do with that. But anyway, the bedrock that is there sustains really tall buildings. If you are going to have really tall buildings, you have to have a foundation that goes down far enough to sustain whatever you have up on top. If the foundation isn't suitable, whatever's up on top will fall down. This is what Jesus talks about in the parable when you, uh, you build your house upon the rock, you've got to build upon a solid foundation. If you don't, when the storms come, there's nothing to hold it or we'll just, just wash away. Well, his word is our foundation. And he was not zealous. He, Jehu was not zealous for the word of God. There are many people who are zealous for the work of God. Not, many, not as many that are zealous for the word of God. Think back in the New Testament. When Jesus is sitting in a room and he's teaching Mary and Martha's home. Somebody is sitting at the feet of Jesus to listen to the word and someone is doing the work. And someone's getting all upset because they're only one doing the work. Some people get very zealous for the work of the ministry. Some people get very zealous for the word of the ministry. What you need to do is become zealous for the word so that you are equipped to do the work. There must be a, a balance on both, both. It does no good to have a great and deep foundation and do nothing with it. You also can't have a great big building and no foundation. It, uh, it, it won't, it won't settle, settle out very well. So Jehu went bad. And others went bad. Because either they, they had a good foundation in the word. But got so involved in the work. They have neglected the foundation that was there. And therefore couldn't support what they had. And they fall. That could be part of it. I think that was more the thing that happened with Solomon. He had a good foundation. It sustained him for a number of years in that work, but eventually he got distracted with all the wives and the idolatry that the wives brought in, and that foundation was eroded away. Just because we have a good foundation of the Word does not mean we will always have a good foundation of the Word. We have got to continue to grow, continue to learn the Word. Just think of people that you know, They were in a certain state, certain place. They were in a church that was feeding them the word. They were growing. They moved to another place. It didn't have the same thing for them. And they eventually began to whittle. And you saw from a distance, you saw them whittle away. And eventually, sometimes they do not even go to church at all. They don't even do anything for God at all. They just wandered away from it all. We have to be just as zealous for the word of God, the foundation, as we are for the work of God, the building. And if we're not, we can turn bad. No matter how strong, no matter how good we are right now, it can go bad if we are not careful. We have got to continue to go after the foundation and continue to press into the Word, to learn the Word, to grow in the Word, to sustain the work that we are doing for Him. But just because God has called you to a great work does not mean you will get there. Like from what i understand it seems that most people never get to the work that they were supposed to do it's a shame look at some of the folks in the in the bible uh, gideon i think he was called to a much higher level than he ever reached samson much higher level he should have been at than what he he eventually came to it's a, it's a it's a shame some of david's sons that died early probably had a much greater call in their life but they didn't sustain or didn't put in any foundation to the word and were swept off by the love of this or for power or for whatever it might be. And they had nothing to, to sustain them. So more Jehus, more Solomons, more Jeroboams are going to creep up around us if we're not attentive to the foundation, to the things that we, we have going on. And you look at, um, I, I, I talk to other Christians, I talk to other people in other places, and you hear some of the things they get excited about in the word of God. And you're thinking, really? Why are you excited about that? Whoever did that in the Bible? Where, where do you see this principle in the, in the and they get excited about that? And they get excited about this thing over here. And I've, I've told the story before. But one of my uh, one of my people that I had as I considered an influencer person who taught me things in the, in the word of God, tremendous things. Then I was getting things from the newsletters, checking up on things that they were teaching. And one newsletter came to me, and it just struck me as odd. Because this person, they moved in the realm of the Spirit. It was incredible to the things that they would do. I loved going to the meetings and just seeing what was, what was going on, what God would do through them, and the miracles that would happen. It was just astounding and wonderful to see. But he wrote in this newsletter, and he said uh, such and such shared a certain thing with them. And um, he had to think about that for a couple of weeks. And after a couple of weeks, it finally came to him that this was not true. And I sat there shocked. I thought, you needed a couple of weeks? I mean, I just, you just read to me what it was. And I knew right away that wasn't anything. Why did it take him a couple of weeks? And I couldn't understand this. How would it take him a couple of weeks to figure that out, that that wasn't right? I'm glad he figured out, that it wasn't right. But a couple of weeks to figure out that this was false? astounded me. Well, that was just the beginning of it. And we began to see more and more. My wife even went down to one of the prayer conferences they had, came out of the first meeting in tears. Just upset. You don't, you should see what's going on. This and this is happening and this is going on. And where's the foundation for this? And is this right? And I'm up over here. I had no inclination to go, but she decided to go. I think she went off with my daughter. The two of them went on out there and and uh, they were just in tears. So I said, well, go over the Brother Doug. Go talk to Brother Doug. So they went over to Brother Doug and they're crying in his office, just all upset because this was such a mighty man of God and he kind of knew a lot more of the story that was going on. He says, Yeah, 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 we know about what's going on over there and uh I'll tell you what, don't go anymore. <laughs> going over here and do something else. And there were some other problems that came up with that. But we saw a lot more things about this. There was less and less word involved in what they were doing. And the foundation would have been eroded. And then some of the things that were spectacular moves of God began to vanish and be replaced with other things. And someone who was a huge part of influencing a lot of things in my life had been completely cut off and I don't even pay any attention to what's going on and what comes out of there or what, uh, what, they, what they teach, what they do. But that's, that's some... I mean, the, the things that they... they I mean, peop- seeing x-rays of people, total strangers, and telling them what's wrong in their body. And bring them on up, and they get prayed over, and go back and find out I'm healed. Doctor said I'm healed. It was, it was right there before. It's not there now. And they don't know what happened to it. And just astounding miracles. And now nothing like that going on at all. We've got to make sure that we maintain the level of word in us to maintain the work that we do. But the work is very, very appealing. And what the enemy does a lot of times is he gets us so involved in the work, we forget about the foundation. And he knows, if I can get you off the foundation, everything can come crashing down. And there'll be more Jehus, and there'll be more guys like this. It's not God's fault that Jehu won bad. God gave him every opportunity. And you can see how his story went. Forty-two brothers show up. Hey, here we are. You're supposed to kill us, right? <laughs> He's made his job easy. How much would God have done to have taken care of the golden calf worship as well. Would God not have helped him to get all those things accomplished? But he decided in his own head, I can't go up against that. And he didn't go. You need to listen to God. God is still going to pick people and say, put this one here, put this one here, and they may still fail. But it's not God's decision. It was theirs. Because people are fallible. When God picks somebody, he is not saying that everything they do from here on out is good, everything is righteous. He is simply saying, that's the one that I picked. He's the one, she's the one who has the opportunity. Now it's up to them to take that opportunity and to go. Father, we thank you that you pick us who are imperfect to do the the jobs that you need done. I know that we have failed We have let you down at times. But you still love us. Still care for us. You don't write us off. And I thank you for that. As long as we can follow after someone like David. That even though we make mistakes, we keep our heart right before you. We repent of the things we need to repent of. and make right the things we need to make right. And still continue to follow after you. And to have that love for your word and that zeal to do what Your Word says that will carry us through all the things that are going on in this life. The momentum in this world is taking many people out of the Word, out of the true worship, and into another area. Father, we need to stay with Your momentum, with the wave of Your Spirit, and not be swayed. And I thank You, Father, that we can do it. In Jesus' name, amen.